deserve so much better than this out of touch, out of control, out of ideas, and soon to be out of office, Prime Minister. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Hello, good morning. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. We're sliding towards the end of the week, Thursday the 20th of January. This is Money Talk on Radio 3 and I'm Peter Lewis. The People's Bank of China has pledged to use more monetary policy tools to avoid a collapse in credit and to stimulate the economy. The PBOC deputy governor said the Chinese central bank will stabilize growth, front load actions and make preemptive moves. He vowed to open the monetary policy toolkit wider to prevent credit fallout, hinted at a cut in the benchmark lending rates, the loan prime rate, and said room for more triple R cuts still exists. Inflation in the UK has soared to a 30-year high. Inflation hit an annual 5.4%, its highest since March 1992, and up from 5.1% in November. On a monthly basis, consumer prices rose half a percent, exceeding economists' projections for a third of a percent climb. And Canadian consumer prices climbed to their highest level in 30 years. Statistics Canada said yesterday the consumer price index in December rose 4.8% year on year, the fastest rate since 1991, and followed a 4.7% rise in November. A third of U.S. companies surveyed by the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong said they're struggling to fill senior roles and 53% of members are considering leaving on personal grounds. It also found that 32% of respondents have had to delay new investments because of the city's COVID travel restrictions and about 60% felt that the Hong Kong government was unconcerned or dismissive about business concerns. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio Von File and Andrew Sullivan from Outset Global. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold at SafePro Group. Do please text 6393-5925 with questions or comments. Email moneytalk at rthk.hk. Post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US stocks swung between gains and losses before closing lower as investors assess how aggressive the Fed is likely to be in raising interest rates. The Nasdaq Composite Index fell into correction territory for the second time this month, closing 1.2% lower at 14,340, down 10.7% from its most recent record close in November 2021. The S&P 500 Index fell 1% to 4,533, closing below its 100-day moving average and is down 5% from its January high. And the Dow, the, the Dow fell for the fourth straight day, losing 340 points to 35,029 as it was dragged lower by a 3.1% decline in Caterpillar's stock. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 0.2%. The UK's FTSE 100 climbed 0.3%. The MSCI Asia-Pacific Share Index fell for a fifth session, led by Japan, where the Nikkei 225 slumped by 2.8%. 
Shares of Sony fell 13% in Tokyo, the biggest one-day drop since October 2008, wiping out 20 billion US dollars of its market value in one day. Traders bet that Microsoft's deal to buy video game maker Activision Blizzard would dramatically enhance the attractiveness of the company's Xbox Game Pass in a challenge to Sony's PlayStation console. The stock was at a 21-year high at the start of 2022. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down a third of a percent to 3,558. The tech-heavy Chinex in Shenzhen tumbled 2.2%, taking its losses to 7.4% this month, the worst start to a year since 2016. However, Hong Kong shares outperformed, with the Hang Seng up 15 points to 24,128. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell 1%. Shares of Alibaba dropped 1.7% after the Biden administration said it was reviewing whether the cloud computing business of the tech giant posed a threat to U.S. national security. And Chinese property stocks and bonds rallied for a second day after the PBOC said it would deploy more monetary policy tools to stimulate the economy. Country Garden led the gains, rallying over 8%, its biggest advance in four months, and the dollar bonds of several Chinese property developers saw record one-day gains. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 1% to $87.71 a barrel after hitting a seven-year high earlier in the day. Gold jumped 1.5% higher to $1,839 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield topped 1.9% earlier on Wednesday, its highest level since December 2019, before settling three basis points lower on the day at 1.85%. It's still well above the 1.5% level at which it started the year. The yield on the 10-year German Bund rose to two basis points, turning positive for the first time since May 2019, and the yield on the 10-year gilt rose four basis points to 1.26%, its highest in three years after data showed inflation in the country had hit a 30-year high. In the currency markets, the euro is trading at $1.13.5. The Japanese yen is at 114.4 against the dollar. Sterling is trading at $1.36 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 60 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.35 in offshore markets this morning. Bitcoin fell 1.6% to $41,700. Around Asian stock markets this morning, the ASX 200 in Australia offered third of percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down 0.1% shortly after the open. The Cosby in South Korea is flat and futures markets pointing to a gain of 40 points for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Day 10, and as always on a Thursday morning, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Feil. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. Also with us, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. The People's Bank of China has pledged to use more monetary policy tools to avoid a collapse in credit and to stimulate the economy. The PBOC Deputy Governor said the Chinese Central Bank will stabilise growth, front-load actions and make preemptive moves. He vowed to open the monetary policy toolkit wider to prevent credit fallout. He hinted at a cut in the benchmark lending rate, the loan prime rate, and said room for more triple R cuts still exists. 
However, China's States Council-run Economic Daily said policy cuts by the PBOC shouldn't be misinterpreted as measures to prompt a recovery of the mortgage markets or the real estate markets. The newspaper said houses for living, not for speculation, will remain the principle and real estate will not be used as a tool to stimulate the economy in the short term. Um, NGO, on your economic clock, where is China at the moment? I think we're moving to an excess supply of goods. The cycle there is, has turned for the worst. China led on the way up, so it's logical on the cyclical basis that it would lead on the way down. But the more important thing is that China has a whole lot of structural trend forces that really account for about 70% of the direction of growth key um, things being the crackdowns at Beijing is targeted, you know all about them, the real estate, about a third of growth. It's told developers to sort of cut back on the debt ratios, the zero COVID policy. Um, I actually think that they're pretty good by having a more holistic approach than my old American friends very myopically always talking only about monetary policy. But the economic clock definitely is, is ticking on Dickey. In other words, it's suggesting that the economic time is worsening. Um, but again, this is basically suffocated by an even worse thing, these structural forces that I've just mentioned. Those structural forces are all self-inflicted, aren't they? The crackdowns that Beijing has targeted on yes. fintech, online education, its policy on real estate, its zero COVID policy, all choices it's made, um, which are clearly slowing down the economy, but it, it could change, couldn't it? Well, let's not forget, we've got the midterms in the US, we have the 20th Party Congress in China, all about November of this year, I believe. I could be wrong, okay? Um, so um, they also have to, you know, the, Beijing isn't kind of totally asleep at the wheel either about these, these political forces. Andrew, what, what do you think about the slowdown that's going on? Clearly the economy is losing momentum, isn't it, in the final quarter of the year? Yes, I mean, I think, as Enzio said, Ian, there's a lot of structural things there. This comes about from their dual economy policy, common prosperity. I think their biggest fear, though, really, is the fact that people lose confidence in the property market. Mm. Um, whilst property, you know, houses for living, uh, a lot of people are very much aware, though, that a lot of people have made a lot of money by speculating there. Uh, but the biggest problem is the fact that if everybody loses confidence in it, then th that will cause the developers yet another problem. And that will kick back into the local authorities who rely on land sales to fund a lot of their special yeah. purpose vehicles, a lot of their infrastructure spending. Uh, and and, and that, that's the point at which, you know, a lot of the financial products, which again, are rotated back into the into the local economy uh, become problematic uh, and the one thing they don't want as as NZO is saying is is running up to the, uh, the the party conference is any sign of social instability do you think there are any signs that maybe they're having second thoughts on these because the property slowdown clearly is causing funding problems now for some very big uh, developers, the, the regulatory crackdown, look how many people that's thrown out of work in, say, the online education sector, and also the zero COVID uh, policy. That's really struggling at the moment as well. Do you think they're starting to think, is this all worth it? Well, I think the problem that they have is that the social contract is the fact that you know, you leave us in power, we won't make bad mistakes or bad policy decisions. So they have very little scope for walking back from a bad decision. And we've kind of seen that with the, the one-child policy. You know, mm. Over the last few years, they've tried to walk back from that, but it's had no real effect um, because people believe that you know, what the government says is right. So the, the trouble they have will be convincing people that, or, or trying to orientate a, a path around 
uh, a, a, a U-turn that makes it look like this was always the party policy. And and I think by saying that we're going to open up tools, you know, we're still not going to support property, but we'll find other ways of finding finance. Is that kind of way of their their, their sort of way of fudging the issue? But on the larger issues, like you know the, the zero COVID policy, it's going to be very very difficult to change that. Um, and I think that could cause them a problem. It comes down to, at the moment, policy, party policy is more important than commerce uh, and the fact that uh, Xi Jinping needs to show that he is, he is right uh, and what he says is the right thing to do. Enzio, if these structural forces, this structural slowdown is, is 70% of the overall mm. slowdown, what can China policymakers do to offset it? Because um, is its monetary tools, is it going to be enough to stop the economy sliding below the 4% growth this year? No, because monetary policy really is kind of a band-aid that is good on the cyclical side of the equation, but not on the trend side. So I'm afraid it's these things that, they, as Andrew was saying, I'm kind of a believer in Chinese pragmatism. Call me a goofball, I don't mind. I just think that ultimately they know on which side their bread is buttered. The mandate of heaven was instituted before the Zhou Dynasty, 1100 BC. So it's kind of been around for some time. I think that will come kicking back and come kicking back in. So um, I think that things like, um, I'm not sort of attuned to policy specifics, but I do think that they will probably, as Andrew was saying, they will ease up sort of fudging the issue to fa saving face and all this kind of stuff, but they will fudge because they are pragmatists at the end of the day. So what about the zero COVID policy? That is the one that maybe would be the easiest to change, wouldn't it? Can, can China, and by extension Hong Kong, continue with this policy when the rest of the world is opening up and learning to live with it? I think they're going to have a big problem there, to be honest. I mean, I think they've got two problems. I mean, I think everybody's still concerned about how effective their vaccines really are. Um, and uh, and that will be an issue. I mean, I don't think you build 5,000-bed hospitals when you've only got 170 cases a day. So I think they realise that there is a problem there that could overwhelm their, their system. Uh, and they're being, as Enzio was saying, they're being quite pragmatic. Let's build more hospitals uh, and staff them in order. But they'll still have a problem there because if the vaccines aren't effective, it's likely to be the frontline staff that have problems. Uh, and then you don't have enough staff in your hospitals to actually cope with the needs. And that's that's going to be the issue for them. So until they can you know, come to a, a term where they know their vaccines are protective um, and that they're going to have to try and remain assertive on testing people and locking people down and really just trying to keep it out for as long as they can. The real problem, as we've seen this week, is the fact that viruses are um, you know, transmittable in ways we hadn't previously really thought By about. By hamsters and on mail from Canada, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Got to feel sorry for the hamsters. <laughs> Enzio, I mean, one of the key things then, if the, the economy is going to move forward and not slip below that 4% level, uh, is consumption. Um, but the data there wasn't great either, was it? We saw retail sales grow only 1.7% year on year in December. What, what have, uh, what's China got to do to Well, more horrendously, they, they actually skidded by 70%. They decelerated by 70% when you compare December with November. Now, I know that one swallow doesn't make a summer kind of thing, but, I mean, it is showing you how... The, the slowdown has has gone through and um, maybe more infrastructure spending, at least contrary to America, people will still go to and, and dig, build, dig ditches and, and build roads in China. So maybe more fiscal spend is, spending is going to come um, back. Mm. 
I, I'm, sorry, I, Andrew. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think they have to do that. I think the, one of the big problems is going to be with the, you know, the annual migration likely to be curtailed. Um, again, we're going to see a lot of spending that would normally take, part, t- take place at this time of year just not happen, uh, and that will be a big knockback. Is there anything that new areas that China can focus on that can maybe replace uh, maybe what the property sector, that that was a third of the economy, it's clearly not going to be that going forward. The education sector has been decimated. Is, are there new things? Maybe I'm thinking of maybe the digital economy that China could focus on uh, to try and replace some of this lost growth? Well, I think the thing they're really trying to do is, is to move into advanced manufacturing. I mean, I think that you go back to you looking at uh, how Trump took out ZTE and Huawei. These were areas that it's really focused on. Uh, Huawei still has the largest number of uh, 5 and 6G patents because they realise if they can set the specification, then people are have, going to have to follow them. Uh, same with uh, digital currencies. You know, If it can set the specification and use it on Belt and Road countries, then it gets more established, and that squeezes the dollar out of Asia and gives them more scope to really drive their own economy. The problem that they have, and and it goes back to realising why they're cracking down on property, is because property is a sponge of money. But they really need that money to invest into advanced manufacturing to be able to compete with the Samsons and the TSMCs. You know, they're a long way behind. TSMC's capex is far above anything that China can afford to spend, but it needs to be getting on that ladder and moving in that direction. Oh. Just If I could just add, let's not forget that growth in traditional economics 101 is a function of population growth and technological progress. And um, I've always maintained, as many listeners know, that if the Chinese were to really institute more vocational training, which I believe they're doing, I'm told that they're actually speaking with people in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland about this, who know what they're doing, um, I think that's at least going to be one great way of, of moving forward because it's so good saying we want the digital economy if you don't have the people who are qualified to actually do the stuff, make do the work. Okay, let me ask you both about uh, inflation because we've had more data um, out from around the world in the past 24 hours. Inflation in the UK soared to a 30-year high. It's an annual 5.4%, up from 5.1% in November. In Canada, consumer prices there climbed to their highest level in 30 years. The consumer price index rose 4.8% year on year. Are we facing a global inflation and stagflation problem? Yes, on both fronts. Um, I'll repeat my sort of mantra for the past months that inflation is not inflation. You have cost push and demand pull. Demand pull is what the monetary policy is all about. Throttle the the excess demand and then less inflationary pressures from the demand side. But the real issue for me probably about two-thirds of the equation is actually these cost-push things, what we all know about the rising raw material prices, high sea shipping rates, protracted port congestion, also a flagging work ethic, especially amongst the entitled youngsters, and then terrible middle-class education, which is not training the kids for tomorrow's jobs. So those are supply bottlenecks that are going to lead a lot more to this stagflation. I, I, just, I think that with China accounting for about 20% of global growth, if China sneezes, the world does catch a cold. I'm not a believer in the American growth rebound coming through. And so I think there is slower growth and firm inflation for the next year, and at what least. A, what about soaring wage inflation? Where does that fit into the picture? Well, budget? it fits in, but again, for all the wrong reasons. It's not because there's too much money chasing too few goods. There are just 
less and less people who want to work. The lie-down generation in China, the social welfare spending in Europe, which I know only too well, why work if, frankly, you're not going to gain a whole lot anyway. So I think that those are also issues. But again, it's these are supply issues, not just demand. And I think, you know, the whole work from home and COVID issue has shown people that they can have a, a different lifestyle yeah, balance point, yeah. um, that previously hadn't been available. Companies have become more accommodative. And so, you know, people are working as they need to, not because they want to. And here in Hong Kong, we've got inflation data out later today. Citigroup analysts are warning that Hong Kong is facing higher inflation and a shortage of food as other goods and airlines cut cargo flights because of quarantine restrictions arising from the government's zero COVID strategy here. Uh, cities predicting the consumer price index will rise 2.5% in 2022, up from 1.6% last year. This seems to be another self-inflicted problem. Yes, very much so. I mean, I think you just have to walk around the supermarkets and look at the, the shelves that are bare of imported goods to realise that. Um, you know, if we've, if we've cut our flights down. And a lot of this, remember that, you know, we had cheap cargo rates because there were a lot of domestic flights, not because of cargo flights per se. Most of the cargo was going around on, you know, normal everyday flights to London. We used to have 8, 12, 25 a day. Now we've got three or four a day. Um, you just don't have the capacity. Well, thank you both very much. Much more I wanted to talk to you about. But sadly, we've run out of time. That was Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global and Personal Wealth Advisor in Zilvon File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-four and a half on the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, we were talking earlier about zero COVID in China. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what's going on there. Um, China and by, defin- by extension Hong Kong are really about the only places left in the world that are now following this type of strategy. Is it sustainable? Well, most experts don't think so. Uh, so in a way, what they're doing is as much uh, driven by political decision making as it is um, medical or, or scientific reasoning. Uh, but uh, you know, if we think back before Omicron spread, uh, when, when Delta spread, the Disneyland incident uh, last fall, uh, the authorities in China have clearly made a decision uh, for now about how they're going to handle outbreaks, however small, and it's going to include uh, these very strong measures, uh, citywide lockdowns, certainly neighborhood lockdowns. One person comes in contact with someone, uh, then the contact tracing net is cast very widely and, uh, until they feel that, that the global situation has improved and they don't have an Olympics or a big party meeting uh, coming up, uh, they're not going to change that. But I think at some point they will, and they'll declare a big victory for how their way of handling this worked. Well, what's interesting is the number of things in China that are being banned from being imported because they're being blamed uh, for spreading COVID and, and some quite bizarre things as well. I mean, pet man- mammals, including hamsters here in Hong Kong, are being blamed. Uh, dragon fruit from Vietnam, cherries, um, a whole list of frozen foods. And, and Beijing even blaming mail from Canada uh, for an outbreak there. What do you make of that? Well, this has certainly been something that's been a matter of debate for, for uh, the last uh, two years now, whether or not 
people can get infected from handling packages, whether it was frozen food or other type of packages. Now we have the big hamster uh, debate. Uh, but again, this is as much a political decision. And, and yes, there's, there's criticism. Uh, certainly we've seen lots of criticism in, in Hong Kong with regard to the hamsters. And uh, for those people who are sending me memes with hamsters, you could stop now because I've gotten so many. Uh, but, but, but again, ultimately, the, the cost, the political cost for the authorities uh, is small because notwithstanding the small number of people who are going to complain, it, it appears certainly on the mainland that that a lot of people are, are not really affected by this or they're comfortable with it. It could be because they just believe the message. Uh, but, but really the cost to implement these measures from a political perspective is ultimately very small. Uh, so the authorities could say, okay, this week we're going we're gonna to ban the import of, of uh, fill-in-the-blank, whether it's a, a frozen food or a fresh produce. And, and is it causing problems with China's trade partners? Is it likely to uh, garner retaliatory measures as well? It could, but uh, one thing we've learned from the trade and other disputes over the last few years is that uh, the Western countries just move very slowly, uh, whether it's because they're democracies or because the uh, China agenda has so many different issues that span across uh, so many different areas, whether that's trade or human rights, Hong Kong, uh, the list goes on. Uh, again, by, by the time these countries get around to doing something about it, uh, China might have lifted the ban. We see that uh, very recently, for example, with, with flight bans, where the United States says, well, this violates our bilateral agreement, and we're going to think about doing something. Uh, but maybe it's going to take them a month to think about doing something, and by that time, the ban will have been lifted. Do you think part of this is a way of China maybe being more assertive um, on the trade front? We know that. It wants to have a bigger say in global trading rules. So all these spot checks and bans and on various imports, does that give a chance for China uh, to, set, uh, to set the trading rules? Yeah, that's a very interesting point because certainly China has, has been trying to grow its influence, not just in, in the WTO uh, or uh, the RCEP. Uh, they're not in CPTPP, but they want to be. Uh, so whether or not these kinds of health concerns become uh, a greater focus of international trade negotiations and whether or not China is going to try and, and use the, the last two years of a global pandemic to say we need to have more flexibility to ban imports for health reasons beyond the kind of flexibility that, that exists in current inter in the international trade regime, uh, that really remains to be seen. Uh, but, but again, the, the, the cost for dragging out negotiations by raising that point uh, seems to be pretty low for China. And then uh, a similar issue, uh, not just for trading rules that's coming up, is you know, we see the speculation renewed about expatriates leaving Hong Kong and, and who's going to replace that talent. And it seems that whether it's the, the Hong Kong government or the central government, uh, they're very confident that they could replace that talent with people from the mainland. And also, I presume there are some upsides of closing the borders, some economic upsides, because it helps control uh, capital outflows, could also help presumably boost domestic consumption. Oh, for, for sure. Uh, and uh, we know that China has been trying to encourage people to travel domestically. Even before uh, COVID, uh, we, we see a lot of stories about red tourism, for example, uh, outbound travel. 
uh, for purposes of gambling has been a, a huge issue for the Chinese government with a lot of measures uh, that have been implemented in, in recent months and years. So, yeah, that, that's another thing to watch uh, post-pandemic. And, and sort of a test case for all this is the Olympics in, in a couple of weeks because uh, very, very strict controls on, on inbound arrivals. And then normally, of course, this would have been a moment where China would have encouraged lots of uh, tourists to come in and see, see the event and, and, and the show, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, well, whether or not uh, they don't want people traveling out as much, they don't need as much foreign tourists coming in, and that'll be replaced with, with local travel is certainly something to watch. Ross, thanks very much indeed. Always good to talk to you. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning in Australia, first of all, the SX200 down just slightly, 0.1% lower. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan has turned positive. It's now up 0.9%. Cosby in South Korea is also up now, up about a third of a percent. Futures markets indicating a gain of about 120 points uh, for the Yi Hang Seng at the open. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil is slightly firmer at $87.71 a barrel, close to a seven-year high. Uh, gold is trading at $1,840 an ounce. And that's it from me this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for back chat. Janice Wong and James Ockenden with you after the news. The weather forecast mainly fine. Cool in the morning. Maximum temperature is going to be around 20 degrees during the day. And then windy with a few rain patches in the next couple of days. The temperature right now is 16 degrees. 81% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrofsky with the half-hour news. Hong Kong is facing the prospect of more COVID cases of an unknown origin. The Center for Health Protection yesterday reported 16 cases, including seven thought to have been acquired in the community. Two of these involving a kindergarten teacher and a 79-year-old man remain a mystery. There are also about 10 preliminary positive cases, some unlinked. They include a secondary school student and an air freight worker who lives in the same public housing block as the 79-year-old man. Here's the center's Dr. Chuang Shuk Kwan. We are indeed very worried about the increasing number of unknown cases in the community with Delta in some cases and Omicron in the other cases. So, um, and there are signs that there are still cases coming up uh, from the uh, community testing centers. So um, we urge the public uh, to be uh, vigilant about the hand hygiene, avoid um, social activities as, as much as possible. The government has again called on people living and working in Sham Shui Po to keep voluntarily testing for COVID, following concerns about silent transmission chains there. In a statement, it said 9,800 people had already tested at eight service points it had set up. It also said sewage samples from the area had tested positive. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he'll fight on to despite fresh demands for him to quit over allegations of staff parties that broke COVID lockdown rules. One previous loyally, loyal ally, the former Brexit minister, David Davis, told him he'd failed to take responsibility for his actions and said, in the name of God, go. In a bruising encounter in Parliament, Britain's opposition Labour leader, Keir Starmer, described Mr. Johnson's account of events as unbelievable. Doesn't the country deserve so much better than this out-of-touch, out-of-control, out-of-ideas and soon-to-be-out-of-office Prime Minister? Earlier, a Conservative member of Parliament defected to the opposition Labour Party. 
International telephone links have been restored to Tonga for the first time since communication was lost last Saturday as a result of the volcanic eruption and tsunami. The telecom operator Digicel said phone calls were now possible, though Internet connections could take weeks to restore after an undersea cable was damaged. The first aid ships from Australia and New Zealand are expected to arrive by Friday. Speaking to the BBC, Tonga's High Commissioner to London, Titilupe Tuivakano, explained rescue efforts. We have confirmed three fatalities, which is, of course, very sad news. Uh, but no other deaths have been reported or cases of missing persons. But uh, I do imagine that His Majesty's Armed Forces, the Navy, has been deployed and with their patrol boats for frontline responders to assess and evacuate people from the low-lying islands that have been severely impacted.